We are trying to change out there, which is nothing more than a mirror in here of our sense of reality. We're out there, we're doing this, we're doing that, trying to change this reality out there. We're never going to do it because it doesn't exist out there. It exists in here and it exists in here, if we come from consciousness. Hello everyone. This episode is very much a continuation of the previous one, where once again I'll be looking at the concept of conspirituality. In the last episode, I mentioned the term conspirituality, a contraction of conspiracy theory and spirituality, comes from a 2011 paper by Charlotte Ward and David Voas. I also proposed that these two areas have been intertwined with each other since time immemorial. In this episode, I'm going to explore the different ways this manifests. As promised, I will offer myself up as a subject for examination, laying my own conspirituality out on the table to be poked and prodded. In many ways, I am a child of conspirituality, becoming interested in both areas at almost exactly the same time, with the spiritual ever so slightly preceding the conspiratorial. David Icke's book, The Biggest Secret, played a substantial role in my introduction to both areas, with spirituality, I initially read broadly, wanting to gain a sense of the entire landscape. I investigated all sorts of yogic and qigong exercises, as well as a plethora of different meditations. As the years went by, I found myself naturally gravitating in certain directions. I was drawn to the simplicity of the self-inquiry practice of India's Vedanta school. Put simply, this consists of a continuous dwelling upon variations of that most foundational question, Who am I? What is this self at the core of my being? Or this being at the core of myself? This practice made sense to me. I saw it as a continuation of an earlier interest I'd had in the philosophy of René Descartes and his efforts to locate a solid sense of self in I think, therefore, I am. Incidentally, Descartes developed his philosophy by creating a conspiratorial thought experiment, where an evil demon was trying to deceive him, and he had to outsmart it by finding that which he could definitely know to be true. I found self-inquiry could be arduous, requiring consistent, penetrating attention and an ability to be comfortable with not arriving at easy or concrete answers. I had to resist the temptation to palm myself off with glib platitudes about being one consciousness nice as that might sound. Instead, I sought to stare into the depths of my being and embrace the mystery to be found there. Questions of identity also require a level of comfort with paradoxes. How is it possible to look at the thing that is looking? Furthermore, for this process to be holistic, there must be a willingness to acknowledge aspects of our psyches we really aren't comfortable with and would rather keep out of sight. Self-inquiry involves turning the arrow of one's attention around 180 degrees to peer back within. When that arrow resets to once more look out upon the world, it seemed natural to me to maintain that same sense of inquiry, of deep looking. In doing so, it became abundantly clear to me that, just as we have illusions within, they also exist in the world out there. 
surface understandings give way to a deeper and more complex story. Whether it's what the nightly news tells us about terrorism, global warming, or economic policy, it is my opinion that our cultural myths are consistently and demonstrably untrue. At best, they are a simplistic facade covering complexity and nuance. At worst, outright lies. Through applying this process of deep looking, I came to embrace a conspiracy position as being broadly correct. Whilst I've explored the nuance of this in previous episodes, it's abundantly clear to me that we still live in an age of empires, that intelligence agencies work hand-in-glove with terrorists, and the Green Movement is co-opted as a cover for neocolonialism, all points conspiracy theorists would typically embrace. Conspiracy, however, much like spirituality, is a broad church, containing people who are chalk and cheese to each other. Indeed, a lot of people who hold a broadly conspiratorial worldview would be aghast to be labelled conspiracy theorists. In much the same way, a lot of people involved in Advaita Vedanta or Zen Buddhism may not relish the term spirituality, with all the fluffy New Age connotations it contains. On the occasions I've attended conspiracy theory events, I've met some very interesting people. I've also met people who talk about how the Rothschild family were behind the construction of the Great Pyramid, or how energy weapons in space definitely brought down the Twin Towers. Likewise, in spiritual groups, I've met people who've told me about their communications with Merlin on the astral plane. This is not exactly my cup of tea. Criticism of conspirituality tends to focus on the more fringe elements of those holding a conspiracy worldview. It also tends to narrow spirituality to New Age spirituality. I mentioned Christianity being intrinsically entangled with conspiracy in the previous episode. Charlotte Ward and David Voas acknowledge this connection in their paper, but don't consider it a form of conspirituality. In a sense, it's a worthy distinction, as Christian conspiracists often see the New Age as part of the conspiracy, blurring distinctions between world religions so the Antichrist can rule as head of them all. In another sense, however, it is surely inaccurate. Christianity is, of course, a form of spirituality. If we narrow our definitions too much, we are going to form an unreliable picture of the landscape. In particular with conspiracy, it's not clear where the boundaries lie. A widely respected journalist like John Pilger, for example, is certainly not considered a conspiracy theorist. However, his entire body of work is a 50-year-long expose of state and corporate power conspiring against the common people. So why isn't he? We must then at least give thought to where and why we are drawing the boundaries when referring to both conspiracy and spirituality. Having explored how my own inner self projects outwards onto how I see the world, let's turn our attention to other groups and see if the same mirroring is present. Let's start with New Age Conspiracism. I think some of the parallels are remarkable. Awakening is a core concept in spirituality, in the sense of waking up to our true self, our essential nature. Awakening is also spoken of in conspiracy theory, but here it means to wake up to our enslavement by the conspirators. Spirituality has a theme of everything being connected and nothing arising by chance, whether through synchronicity, the intervention of angels, or your granny from the other side, there is a belief in an infinite intelligence assisting life in turning out for the good. In conspiracy theory, there is also a sense of events not being random, 
except now they are directed by an almost omnipotent dark force. Whether it's 9-11, the fire at Charles Cathedral, or Zinedine Zidane headbutting Marco Matarazzi at the World Cup Finals, all major events spring from this global cabal seeking world domination. Spirituality has a sense of a global telos. The world is moving towards a great awakening where we will all realise our essential oneness and live happily ever after. This tipping point always seems to be just around the corner. Conspiracy theory also has a telos, except this one is for the cage doors slamming short and humanity finding itself locked in a technocratic fascist state. Again, this is something we are always teetering on the brink of. Spirituality often embraces all the worldly beings, angels or spirit guides. Conspiracy mirrors this with demons or reptilians from the lower fourth dimension. And finally, in spirituality there is a concept of an initiatory myth. The idea that raw truth is too hard to grasp, so instead a symbolic story about that truth is presented. There's no corresponding concept in conspiracy theory, but the theories often do serve this purpose. I explored this in episode 2 of this series, where I suggested David Icke's stories of reptilians are a kind of initiation myth that breaks a person out of their existing paradigm and allows them to see the world of fresh eyes. It appears then that a segment of conspiracy theory reflects a segment of spirituality in a dark mirror, with all that is good becoming bad. Why is this? Is it a coincidence? Are the parallels not really there? Am I constructing them artificially? Is it just the way the universe is set up? Is it psychological projection? That a belief in love and light engenders a fear of darkness? I'm not sure, but it certainly is interesting. I could suggest it is the case that some people invested in New Age spirituality live largely through the imagination, untethered from empirical realities. It is no surprise then that this same imaginative approach is present when they look outwards and try and make sense of the world. I'm not claiming this is an altogether bad thing either. Whatever its shortcomings, perhaps it gives rise to novel and useful insight too. If it is indeed the case, for example, that hands-on healing is a real phenomenon, it's going to be pretty embarrassing that all the world's top scientists missed this, whilst the ladies from your local Reiki group didn't. The same could be said about credentialed journalists missing conspiracies. Let's now take a deeper look at the other group, spiritually inclined people who detest conspiracy theory. I must acknowledge that this is one of the more challenging perspectives for me to adopt. I'm going to take a stab at it, and I'm open to being corrected if anyone listening feels misrepresented. I emphasise this process of self-inquiry or deep looking as being core to my sense of what spirituality is for me. It's not the only thing that could be a core concept, however. We could also insert a feeling of oneness or connection to humanity in the natural world. From this springs a sense of everyone working for a common goal. We're all in this together as the pandemic propaganda goes. Unless you believe it, of course. Then it's a statement of solidarity. A lot of people I've met who have adopted this ideology have been very nice, kind human beings. They don't necessarily have vast chasms of darkness lurking within them. This is obviously not a bad thing. But nice people can struggle to recognise deception and malice. It's hard to see in others what doesn't exist within ourselves. Indeed, there was a research paper some years ago that looked at this issue, 
A Dr. Karen Douglas observed that people who were more open to engaging in conspiracies themselves found it easier to believe they were going on. Squeaky clean people tend to have a they-would-never-do-such-a-thing attitude. Think of how prone spiritual people are to getting sucked up into cults run by charismatic yet abusive gurus. I would propose this is, to an extent, the shadow of niceness, or even the shadow of oneness, of being so out of touch with one's own darkness there is no ability to see evil lurking behind a beautiful yet deceptive mask. How could that same naivety not transfer over to a political level? I don't exempt myself from this naivety, I struggle with it too. I recently listened back to an interview I conducted a couple of years ago with psychotherapist Fran Schuer. Fran is active within the 9-11 Truth Movement and has authored a series of excellent articles on the United States imperial history. I quizzed her about the challenges of understanding the psychopathic mindset. It's really interesting for me to listen back to that conversation. I can hear myself struggling to come to terms with the existence of such people, to enter into their perspective. In the time between then and now, I have made efforts to challenge my perceptions. I've read books on psychopathy and biographies of people like Mao Zedong or Francis Papa Dr. Valia. It is certainly a virtue to recognise our own capacity for evil. Born in a different setting, perhaps we would have traded slaves or gone along with the Nazi regime. It is also a virtue, however, to recognise that some people function in a fundamentally different manner from the rest of us. Ideas of oneness mean nothing to them. They are locked out of experiencing empathy. They will, however, adopt the language of such things to dupe the gullible into giving them power. I'm not levelling this criticism at just anyone who doesn't view the world through a predominantly conspiratorial lens. It's perfectly reasonable to look at events arising in the world as being the product of structures and incentives more than conspiracy. I am reserving it for those who shriek with horror at the mere mention of such conspiracies. Those who absolutely cannot entertain the possibility that state actors have significantly divergent goals from our own, and are willing to manifest those goals by any means necessary. At the risk of being repetitive, again, I advocate pluralism. Thank you very much for listening. At the time of recording, I'm working on a further episode for this series, looking at how conspiracy theories are employed, perversely, to justify imperial expansion. I'm also constructing a new series stepping out of pure philosophy and more into the actualities of history, looking at the role of empire through the 20th century. And so, I'll hope you'll join me for those. <laughs>